Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Ornithology Presents Fuck All. Uh, we are not doing anything Keanu related to it. Well, we're mentioning Keanu. Uh, but this is not a Keanu-centric episode and I will not be joined, as always, by Alex Blurdy. I'll give you an update towards the end about what's going on with the regular stuff. What I am going to do is I'm going to talk to you about the year that was 2021 in film. And you know what? Despite the films that have been on at the Megaplex, the big studio blockbusters, largely being disappointments for me this year, which again, I'll speak more about in a moment, 2021's been a pretty cracking year for film. I've got a, a list that's almost 50 long of films that I would strongly recommend. I watched, I don't know, over 400 films this year. Not all new ones. But uh, yeah, I think it's been a really difficult year to gauge in the in the way that well the last two years in the way that we normally would because the cinemas haven't already always been open and the cinematic window the theatrical window has become so incredibly short now that films from directors like Ridley Scott and Steven Spielberg are lasting not even a week in cinemas at times before they disappear or they end up on on home video and then we've also seen major releases like Dune the Suicide Squad Matrix Resurrections have day and date release in the cinema and on HBO Max. And although those films have all done okay, I think it's safe to say they all they they haven't done as well as they could have done. And Spider Man came along at the end of the year, which was not being launched on Disney Plus at the same time. It was theatrical only, and has become the number one American release anyway uh, in the world this year in the space of about ten days. So, interesting times. Lots of stuff for the bean counters to reflect on. But with the increasing dependence, not just of the distributors, but the audience on streaming services, can I watch this at home if I want to? Uh, and the answer, more often than not being, yes, you can. There is a lot of really good stuff that you can only see at home now. And as we go through, I'll probably go through my top 20 or 25, a, a large number of those are Netflix films. Uh, or films that have only been released to the home video market. And that's not because I've got a Netflix. I haven't got a Netflixation. Uh, it's just, it's just they are making good films. They make so much product. Yeah, a lot of it is shit, but some of it's really fucking good. Anyway, to start with, I'm going to give you my top ten disappointments of 2021. Now, these by no means, well, they're not necessarily the worst films I saw this year, and two of them. I'll tell you now, I didn't make it all the way through. But these are films that I was relatively excited for. Um, they didn't have to do much to win me over, and they failed at that very simple task. Number 10, it's sort of an honorary mention, really. It was on last year's Look Forward to 2021, A Glitch in the Matrix, which is a documentary by the team behind uh, Room 237, which was the film looking at all of the theories, conspiracy theories, fan theories around Kubrick's The Shining. I think I assumed, as many other people did, that they would be doing something similar with The Matrix and its effect on culture, specifically opening people up to the idea that we could be living within a simulation. Unfortunately, it, it didn't just not engage me in the way that I thought. There are some interesting things in it. There are some horrific things in it as well but it's far too long and far too plodding and it just didn't feel edited particularly number nine black widow rough year for marvel 
Black Widow wasn't the worst thing they put out, but I think it's probably my lowest scoring cinematic release of theirs, feature film release. Shang-Chi, I, I enjoyed the first hour of very, very much. I didn't care so much for the second hour, but it was fine. Eternals, oh God, for every good thing, there was something I didn't like. And I think Richard Madden and Gemma Chan are nice to look at and not very much else. I don't think either of those should be leading a $200 million tentpole. But Black Widow is a film that we've been waiting so long for. Pretty much since Iron Man 2, we've wanted a film about Natasha Romanoff. I say we. Me. Me. Uh, the, the unroyal we. The implied we. You and me, we're in this together, okay? Just back off. And, you know, again, it would it, it's so easy to get Black Widow right. This is the one Marvel property where you don't have to spend $150 million, $200 million, loads of special effects, things exploding in the sky. You don't have to do that. It's about an assassin. It's about a spy. Go, Loki. Do $40, $50 million. Give us one of those great mid-budget movies again. And there's so many great stories in, in Natasha Romanoff's backstory that have been hinted at, that have been alluded to. And I guess they kind of did some of that, but at the end of the day, it wasn't the best Black Widow story they could have told. And I thought the action was pretty pedestrian. Some of the effects were not good enough. And Ray fucking Winston and his part that he plays in this film I'm not I'm not having a go at the guy, but Ray Winston and Jason Statham, right? Just never do accents. Just don't ever do accents. Just do your own, okay? Or get someone to dub you, because Ray Winston's accent in this is, is a hate crime, frankly. And yeah, the, the whole last third of this film, I really, really did not care for. So yeah, it's just a big disappointment. Number eight, Jungle Cruise. This is the first film on this list that I did not bother watching to the end. I waited for it to come onto Disney+. Plus. I watched the first hour, and I thought, this really wants to be Pirates of the Caribbean, except it's no fun. Uh, everyone's kind of embarrassing himself, especially Jack Whitehall, who should not be in this film at all. To say it's not even as good as a Pirates of the Caribbean film gives you an idea of how much I disliked Jungle Cruise and just thought it's not worth another hour of my life. And it, the, the, the most frustrating thing about this is that they spent so much money on this film, and yet the whole thing feels like it's on a set. I'm sure it must have been mostly shot on green screen, but it, it looks like it. Yeah, charismatic people. Jesse Plemons, I love. Johnny the Dwayne Roxon, uh, I occasionally uh, like his stuff. And Emily Blunt, I absolutely adore, but Jungle Cruise was just... <laughs> that is the standard of critical appraisal you can come to expect from the rest of this episode. Number seven, this one really hurt. Last Night in Soho. I've loved all of Edgar Wright's films, although I haven't seen A Fistful of Fingers, his first film, which I understand to be awful. Uh, but I loved the Cornetto trilogy. I loved Spaced before he even started making films. Uh, Baby Drivers, okay. Scott Pilgrim, I think, is fantastic. And this did not click for me at all. I love Thomas and Mackenzie. I love Anya Taylor-Joy. And I love 60s and 70s Jallo films, which this seemed to be comparing itself to. Uh, and there's lots of pretty stuff in it, but I thought their script was pretty bad. And some of the acting, uh, especially from... In, in the first half of the film with, with Thomas and McKenzie's college friends. Also, pretty goddamn bad. And I just... My main thing was I didn't feel anything. It is style of substance for me. Not a, not a terrible film. Just a kind of an empty film. Number six. This one won't be popular. <clears throat> no Time to Die. Quite simply, it's better than Spectre. But it's still my fourth favourite Daniel Craig James Bond film. And yes... That includes Quantum of Solace. 
Um, I thought this film was beautiful to look at, and I admire Daniel Craig and what he's done with Bond and his performances uh, in all five films. But this film is nearly three hours long, and in all of that, again, didn't really get me to feel what I think they wanted me to feel. They took the character in a direction that I don't really need Bond to go in, and I thought Rami Malek was awful and underused at the same time. This just went off the rails in the last hour for me completely. Ana de Armas is in the best scene in the film, and that scene doesn't need to be in the film. Number five. Many Saints of Newark. Hey, remember The Sopranos? It's great, wasn't it? Did you ever want a prequel? No, me neither. But they did one, and it's fucking rubbish. Don't listen to anyone. This film is bad from a conceptual level, script level, performances. It's really not good, and it baffles me the pass that people have given, given this. In fact, I would say just watch the first five minutes of this film, and if you don't get that, oh, what are they doing with this feeling? Then I guess you'll enjoy it. I got that feeling straight away, and nothing that followed made me shift that feeling, by which I mean I don't think this is particularly going to be very good, and it wasn't. Number four, old. M. Night Shyamalan's old. Now, disclaimer. I did enjoy this film, and I would watch it again. I don't think I enjoyed it on the level that Shyamalan particularly wanted me to. This film is trash. Awful script. Totally, genuinely pretentious in terms of how it's been shot and directed. By which I mean, if we do something weird with the camera, and the actors do something weird with their performance, people will fill in the blanks and assume, ooh, he's doing something clever here that I haven't quite figured out. He isn't. It's trash and it's pretentious, but it is quite entertaining. Number three. Now, probably genuinely my biggest disappointment of the year, but I did see a couple of films that are actually terrible. So that's why this is at number three is The Matrix Resurrections. And again, I know I'm in the minority on this one. The first half an hour, I was, I was I had some concerns, but I was on for the ride. If they were going to do something interesting with it in the remainder, let's say in the hour that followed, then I was on board. What I didn't realise is that there were two hours to follow, and they didn't really do anything interesting with it. And people are talking about, oh, it's so brave. Isn't brave what Lana Wachowski's done here by not doing the kind of action that fans expect from a Matrix film? And, you know, turning turning this into a discourse about what the Matrix is. Uh, it's not. I don't think it's particularly brave. I don't think it's particularly smart, either, because... I think of Matrix, and I think action. And there is action in this film, but it seems like it's quite begrudgingly put there. It doesn't have the finesse and the care that something like The Matrix Reloaded did in its action scenes, for instance. I think that's because Lana Wachowski doesn't really want to make a Matrix film, which begs the question, why make a Matrix film? Uh, and it was so that no one else would make a Matrix film. And that's just not a good enough reason for me. But Ben, I don't think you understood what Lana Wachowski was trying to do with this film. Well, you might be right. Uh, I think I've got a pretty good grip on it, because I don't think this film is anywhere near as smart as, as people are trying to give it credit for. And honestly, it's been fascinating for me to see the defense of Matrix fans coming out for this film, especially because it hasn't performed particularly well at the box office because some critics have really disliked it. It actually reminds me of when the Phantom Menace came out in 1999, when the Star Wars fans, well, a portion of the Star Wars fans, I'm not going to tire everyone with the same brush, couldn't stand the idea that there would be a Star Wars film out that wasn't the next coming. 
and bending themselves into pretzel shapes to justify all of the things in the film that didn't make sense or that weren't good. Now, I'm not saying that everybody that likes the Matrix Resurrections is behaving that way, but yeah, I, I, I just, I, I thought this film was genuinely quite poorly shot at times. You can really tell it was shot on digital, and at times that digital looks pretty cheap. There's a replacement for Bullet Time that they've done that I, I really hated, and I, I didn't. It's not that I wanted more Bullet Time. I think there is an element of expectation in that, wow, what could we do in the Matrix universe now with all this technology? And how are they going to bring Keanu and Carrie Ann Moss back? The answers to all those questions were flat disappointments for me. And I've just no desire to see it again. Number two, probably the worst film I saw this year, Shadow in the Cloud, written by Max Landis and Roseanne Liang and directed by Roseanne Liang. No idea who she is, so no offense, Roseanne Liang, but you made the worst film I saw in 2021. Chloe Grace Moretz, who I, I I do I want to like, but she doesn't make great choices a lot of the time. In a feminist sci-fi World War Two movie, which doesn't succeed at any of those things, the action is ugly and boring. The science fiction is dumb and not particularly inspiring, and the feminist stuff is just apologia from a guy who's got a tarnished record. That being Max Landis, uh, this film is dreadful and gets worse as it goes on so absolutely avoid shadow in the cloud but at number one a film that i walked out of the cinema from this year f9 the fast saga i made it i'm pretty sure i made it about halfway i normally try and stick it out to an hour and if a film hasn't kept me in my seat by an hour i'm gone and i never would have thought <laughs> that a franchise like the fast and the furious would be so reliant on a writer. But Chris Morgan has shepherded this series since uh, Tokyo Drift, when you know, the Justin Lin era, let's call it. And this is the first entry since that he, uh, he wasn't the writer on. And you wouldn't think a franchise like The Fast and the Furious really is, a, is, is centered around strong script writing, because it isn't. But Fast 9, F9, feels like, it does feel like fan fiction. I'm not the first person to say it. It's like a, a focus group listened to all the stuff that the teenage boys who watched these movies wanted, and they just joined the dots, just, just put that on screen for two hours. Justin Lin has come back to direct this one after, after a break. And I think he's an incredible action director, but the action scenes in this were awful. The humor was just dead on arrival. It was embarrassing. It was painful. It really was painful for me to sit through. And it was especially painful because I have been a defender of this franchise. And F9 did not stand for any of the things that are good about the Fast and Furious franchise, in my opinion. If you can hear a slapping sound, that is me punching my thigh like flagellation for turning my back on family. But I'm done. Honestly, I am done. I don't care anymore. And I don't know if it's because I've grown up or this film is genuinely absolute turd. I'm going to say it's probably the film. Let's talk about some films that I did like this year. That's what we're here for, isn't it? This is based on an incomplete sampling, so I tried to make a note of the films that I definitely didn't see, that I want to see, that may have had a shot of winding up on this list. So I didn't see Pig, the Nicolas Cage film. I didn't see In the Heights or West Side Story. Uh, I, I went to go and see West Side Story, I think about a week after it came out, and it was no longer showing at my cinema. 
Uh, House of Gucci, I couldn't bring myself to go and sit through again. If it, if it maybe wasn't two and a half hours long, I might have gone, but uh, I love you, Ridley, but that one looked kind of painful. I didn't see Luca or Encanto, um, two uh, Disney that haven't had a massive uh, push this year, but I've heard both are good. I didn't see Annette, uh, the film written by the band Sparks and directed by uh, Leos Carax. I didn't see Titan because I don't think it's had a particularly wide release here yet. That's Julie DeCarno's follow-up to Raw, which I absolutely loved from a few years ago. And I didn't see Petite Maman, which is the uh, follow-up from Celine Sciamma, who uh, I've only seen Girlhood and Portrait of a Lady on Fire, but that was uh, 10 stars between them. Um, And I've heard Petite Maman is just as good, so... Those are the films that I want to catch who, that may have had a chance of ending up on this list. Further down my rankings for the year, these are not necessarily the best films of the year in any way, but films that I, I really enjoyed and I would recommend. Uh, films like The Kid Detective was a lot of fun. Passing by Rebecca Hall was really beautiful, just had a slightly weak ending. I'm Your Woman was a good genre film. Oxygen and Stowaway, two really solid sci-fi genre films. Halloween Kills, I really enjoyed, and I know a lot of people got pissed off by that. If you want a big, expensive, gory slasher movie, Halloween Kills is the one, man. Bad Trip, I thought was very, very funny. Wrath of Man from Guy Ritchie, I thought was a really solid heist action film. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and I Care A Lot, really good performances. I'd throw the Mauritanian in there as well. Really good performances. The films as a whole didn't necessarily work for me, but they're definitely worth watching. Promise Young Woman as well, I'd throw in there. Big studio film-wise, uh, some of the ones that I did enjoy. Ghostbusters Afterlife, I thought was Really good fun and quite sweet. It enjoyed it a lot more than I thought he would. Quiet Place 2, I thought was fantastic. Not as good as the first one, but not far behind. Suicide Squad, e- uh, equally, like, just loved it. Seen it twice. I think it's great. The Suicide Squad, I should say. Two werewolf films, The Snow of Wolf... The Snow... The Wolf... Fucking hell. The Wolf of Snow Hollow by Jim Cummings and Werewolves Within. Uh, all I'd say is you wait years for a good werewolf movie and two come along at once. The Harder They Fall uh, was a very Django-esque modern take on a Western, which is one of the best casts of the year. Just a ton of fun. I will be re-watching that film for sure. Paul Schrader's The Card Counter. Grim Watch, but Oscar Isaac being an absolute boss. The Beta Test, or The Beta Test, another Jim Cummings film. Probably his best performance that I've seen. Very dark, sort of satire. Some American Psycho vibes. Yeah, enjoyed that a lot. And the one that I, I wish... I could push a little bit higher. Malignant, which was some of the most fun I had in the cinema this year. Avoid spoilers until you get to, to sit down and watch the film. It is available to watch at home now. Yeah, 10 minutes into the film, you'll think, I think this is kind of shit. Stick with it. Uh, it is kind of shit, kind of on purpose. I thought Malignant was, was brilliant. Uh, the Sparks Brothers, Edgar Wright's other film this year, which I really liked, the documentary about the Sparks, about Sparks, which is eye-opening, takes you through all of their albums. I've listened to a bunch of them since I saw the film. Above and Star, Go to Vista Del Mar, very, very funny, very, very silly. Shiver Baby and Black Bear, two sort of indie films. Well, Black Bear especially will mess with your head a little bit. Aubrey Plaza is amazing in that film. And uh, Christopher Abbott, who's sort of the best-kept secret in indie circles at the moment, also excellent in that. Shiver Baby is just a yeah get another, another sort of dark comedy about coming out sexually, but then also struggling with being Jewish today, I guess. Um, and Worth, another Netflix film, <clears throat> which is about putting a sum of money on a person's life as as compensation for 9/11, uh, which actually one of the better films about 9/11 because it goes in 
through that route rather than trying to tackle it head on. So that's about 20, what's that, about 20, 25 films that I would recommend. They're all, they're all good three and a half, four star films for sure, at least. But the top 20, according to Ben, will follow. And these are not, they're not really what I'm saying are the 20 best films I saw this year. They're just the 20 that I had the strongest reaction to. And there's a couple of cheats in here because some of these are not necessarily what you'd call films. Letterbox lets me have it. So y'all are having it too. At 20, 20. Summer of Soul. And this is a documentary about the, it's called the Black Woodstock Harlem Cultural Festival. It took place in the summer of 1969, the same time as, as Woodstock was happening. And it was filmed hundreds, well, maybe not hundreds, but certainly dozens of hours of film taken of it. Largely never been seen by anyone. The reasons as to why are discussed in the film. So this is by Questlove uh, from The Roots. And I thought he's used a very interesting framing device for this, which is a, a couple of, you know, to-camera interviews. But one in particular that's just used at the beginning and the end of the film that kind of encapsulates what this event really means um, and, and what its erasure from cultural history means as well. Uh, but this isn't a heavy film at all. The reason to watch it, although it does get into talking about Dr. King's death, the civil rights movement, and, and all of the backlash against that at the time, it's really just a chance to see these amazing performers like Stevie Wonder, Sly and the Family Stone, Nina Simone, Gladys Knight, performing at, at the peak of their powers. Sly and the Family Stone in particular are amazing and surely the coolest thing that's ever happened. Uh, so yeah, it's two hours long. It's on Disney+. Plus. Joyful, interesting uh, really worth a watch. Number 19. Number 19. No Sudden Move, uh, the latest film from Steven Soderbergh having retired. Another film that's just got a remarkable cast. Don Cheadle, Pizza Del Toro, David Harbour, Brendan Fraser, Kieran Culkin, and on and on and on. It's a very twisty crime thriller, but not in the oceans mold. Probably a bit more in the out of sight mold, but even then, not really. More Devil in a Blue Dress. We're going to look at another Don Cheadle film. I just really enjoyed it, and and, and it, star power has a lot to do with that. Every sort of five or ten minutes, another face comes on screen, and you go, great, love that guy, with a Soderbergh crime caper. If that's your cup of tea, no sudden move is, is going to scratch some itches for you. I really enjoyed it, and uh, it's, a, it's a film I could watch again, for sure. Number 18 is only as low on this list because I've only seen it once, and I suspect when I rewatch it, I will say The Power of the Dog is a masterpiece. It's certainly a film I've thought about a lot in the week since I saw it. Benedict Cumberbatch is amazing in this film. Jesse Plemons and Cody Smith-McPhee are also excellent. But Kirsten Dunst is not getting talked about nearly as much as she should be for my money. I thought she was brilliant in this film, which I won't really spoil. Don't go in expecting a Western Western, although it is set in, you know, in the early 20th century the old west was dying and technology was coming along and sort of a way of life was being cast to the, the history pages i suppose but it's set then but there's no shootouts or anything this is about i don't really want to say what it's about anyway it's jane campion who did the piano and there's a lot of similarities to the piano so if you like the piano power of the dog is a massive recommendation i thought it was really fantastic really gripping very very skillfully and tastefully made with just four great performers driving it forward and, and like i say I've, I've thought about it more than most films this year number 17, number 17. the night house a horror film another return of rebecca hall who seems to have been away from my screens for a few years this is directed by david bruckner and yeah from its generic title the night house it's a fairly generic setup for a horror film 
brimming with atmosphere, good performances, genuinely wasn't sure where it was going, sort of halfway through, didn't know what the second half had for me. And it satisfied another film that you can't really say too much about for fear of spoiling something in it. But um, not a gory film, not a film with loads of jump scares or anything like that, but also not a Mike Flanagan. I don't really know how to categorise Flanagan anymore. Um, not Midnight Mass, you know, not monologue and that's not a slight against Midnight Mass at all, which I love. Yeah, just a, a, a really moody, quite slow, really well-made horror film. Strong recommendation. November 16, another round. Mads Mikkelsen's second best film of 2021. Um, his performance in another round is a thing of beauty. I mean, there are subtleties at work in certain scenes of this film that are really quite something to behold. And the the final scene is just Mads Mikkelsen showing you that he's the greatest human being on the planet. And elsewhere, I I, I found this, you know, very, very entertaining. It's, it's, it's funny and it's sad. And it really did make me think about my own habits, um, you know, in relation to alcohol and socializing and how we use those things. And genuinely sat down at the beginning thinking, oh, I wonder if this would be a good film to drink along to with friends. And by the end of the film, I was very much convinced this is not a film you should drink along to. And that's not just because it would be a Herculean feat of liver damage. But it, it genuinely like inspired me to, to think more about some of my drinking habits. Uh, I, having said that, I'm just thinking about awful hangover I had a couple of days ago. And maybe I didn't think hard enough about some of my drinking habits. Anyway, another round. Great film. 15. 15. Bo Burnham's Inside. What did you do with your lockdown? Did you do something creative? Did you do something that you'll have memories of? in the years to come, you can show your grandkids. Because Bo Burnham sat down and wrote 20-odd songs, just basically wrote a musical about being locked in your house and going crazy and the state of the world. And then he filmed it and he acted in it, performed it, he edited it, um, and he kept editing it and he kept going. And it's brilliant. Yes, it's a bit navel-gazy. Yes, it's a bit first-world problems. And I think he kind of acknowledges that himself as well. But it's his own personal experience. And he's a fairly successful, wealthy, white guy living in Los Angeles. So, of course, it's going to reflect those issues rather than any others. The songs are amazing. It's really funny. I'm not sure it's you know that insightful and it's too long, but Bo Burnham himself acknowledges that. And he can't actually stop making it. He's terrified for it to end. For the song, White Woman's Instagram alone, I recommend Bo Burnham's Inside. At number 14. 14. 14. Scenes from a Marriage. I'm cheating here. It's not really a film. It's a miniseries. Uh, it's about five hours long. But it's there'll never be a sequel. I hope there'll never be a sequel. This is a remake of Ingmar Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage, which was also released as a miniseries and cut down into a feature film. So that's why I think it's okay for it to be on the list. But two of my favourite performers, Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain, both doing some of their best work. It really has been a banning year for Oscar Isaac between The Card Counter, um, This, and Dune. And I, I, it was just refreshing to see such an honest and grown-up look at different stages and the different ways in which... Sorry, the different stages of a relationship, but also the different ways in which a relationship can be categorised. The evolution of a relationship. Once you step outside the boundaries of what everybody else calls it, 
what you can allow it to be. That's how I looked at it anyway. It's a tough watch at times. I mean, it deals with it, it deals with it all. I mean, you could very easily watch the majority of the first episode and go, oh, this is quite nice, isn't it? And then there's um, something not so nice, really not so nice at the end of the first episode. And that sets the tone for everything that's to follow. But it's not a, it's not a complete Debbie Downer either. I, th- I think if you're if if you're willing to have your ideas about relationships challenged to a certain extent, Scenes from Marriage is, is excellent. Number thirteen, number thirteen. Unlucky for some, but not for Spider Man. No Way Home, the biggest film of 2021 to come out of the Western world. First of all, Marvel's best thing in 2021, no question. Second of all, it is going to become increasingly difficult to avoid having films like Spider-Man No Way Home spoiled for you. And that is really sad, because there's things in this film that you should not know about until they happen on screen. And I'm not talking about the fact that Alfred Molina's in it even, although that would be a great reveal if they hadn't blown that in the first trailer. And I know it's kind of Alfred Molina's fault, because he basically confirmed a year ago that he was in this. But I don't see why you have to lean into that. Not everybody would know that, right? So why shove it down people's throats? Anyway, all that is to say even when the spoilers have been spoiled, there are things in Spider-Man No Way Home that are not great, that don't work. But there's so much stuff that has it just its never really been done before. And that feeling that <clears throat> at least I had, and a lot of people I think had, coming out of Endgame, which was, I can't believe they did it. I can't believe they did it. Fist-pumping stuff of like, yes! And the, and the beauty of being in a cinema audience when something like that happens. That is the, the brilliance of Spider-Man No Way Home. It's not a five-star film, but it is a five-star event. I've seen it twice in the cinema. I enjoyed it just as much the second time. And I think it has to be said, as sort of serious and grim as some of the advertising for this film has been, this is a very, very funny film. There are some great lines in this. Basically, they did it. And I'm very excited about the prospect of there being more Tom Holland Spider-Man, if there can be, because of how this film ends. And that's all I have to say about that. Number 12. Mogul Mowgli. Another person who had a good year. Riz Ahmed. Riz Ahmed. Uh, this is a sister piece to Sound of Metal in a lot of ways. Uh, it's about an artist struggling to continue doing their art when afflicted with a disability. And Riz Ahmed is amazing in it. It's sad and it's hopeful and it's powerful. And it did something that I'm normally against, which is indulging a character's sort of inner fantasies by showing them as flights of fancy cinematically visually and okay the argument could be made it was a little bit of padding to get this film up to 90 minutes or whatever it is but it actually kind of worked for me in this one and it's a really strong recommendation on the basis that i think it's been overlooked because sound of metal got so much press at the beginning of the year and rightly so but if you enjoyed sound of metal i'd really thoroughly recommend mogul mogli riz ahmed is one of our most exciting actors working you should probably see everything that he does to be honest but you should definitely see mobile mobile 11 legs 11 all the ones 11 the last duel uh, which i've seen uh, twice i won't get into how baffling i found some of the critical response to this film but i thought this was a nuanced um, and epic film don't confuse nuanced with subtle it's not a subtle film ridley scott doesn't really do subtle but it is nuanced it's a good script from uh, ben affleck Matt Damon and Nicole Holofcena, uh, and it takes a Rashomoni approach to an act of sexual violence and tells it from two males and the females' victims' perspectives. 
uh, at the same time as allowing Ridley Scott to do all that medieval battle stuff and lay on... Is it, it's not a spoiler to say this film ends with a duel. Lay on a fucking brilliant and violent and awful and messy final spectacle. Gen- genuinely, the more I think about it, up there with Ridley Scott's not absolute best, but it can sit in the Pantheon for sure. Not that surprising that he lost a load of money. But Ridley Scott is one of the few guys who can get that film made at that level, and we should just be thankful for that. I don't think this film's going anywhere. I think the buzz on it is is only growing. I think we'll be talking about this film for a long time to come, and rightly so, because it's absolutely great. Into the top ten, oh my god. At ten! Some people might think it should have been higher. Dune, or Dune Part 1. Therein tells the story. I don't have any problems with this film. I really don't. I think it's beautiful to look at. Gorgeous. Some scale that hasn't really been seen on cinema, maybe ever. Denis Villeneuve doesn't really make less than great films these days. Lots of my favourite people are in this. Oscar Isaac, as I said before, I think Timothée Chalamet is really great in this. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson, I love. Zendaya's not in it that much. Um, Javier Bardem, not in it very much, but also absolutely great. It's just, it's it's not a complete story. It just sort of ends for me. I didn't have as much of a problem with that the second time I saw it, but I can't really say this is a masterpiece because it's just the beginning. It's just part one. What there is, fantastic, virtually flawless. Let's just say the Ornithopters, particularly one scene where we get to see them revving up and taking off, are just awesome. At number nine, again, a bit of a cheat. This is Time by Jimmy McGovern, um, directed by Lewis Arnold, however. Technically a miniseries, a three-part miniseries, so it runs just over three hours long, I think, starring Sean Bean and Stevie Graham. Stephen Graham. Sean Bean has been put away in prison for four years for killing someone while drunk driving, and Stephen Graham is one of the correctional officers who he has interactions with during his time there. It's about the journey of a civilian, a guy who's a teacher who just made a horrible mistake and has to put it right, serving his time, and how it alters him, and how he deals with his guilt and tries to reckon with that. That's I'd, I'd say that's the A story. And then the B story is Stephen Graham, who has a son in another prison who has to try and protect him from a gang in the prison where he works, and they are, this gang are asking him to do nefarious deeds or else. There are such subtleties in Sean Bean's performance in this. It's far and away the best thing I've seen from him. And that is my number one recommendation for time, is to see Sean Bean being amazing. Not showing off at all. Could almost be dialogue-free most of the time. There's such pain and there's such nuance in his expressions and the way that he delivers these very simple lines. There's a lot going on that's being unspoken. And then in the final act... The final third, let's say, of uh, of the whole thing. Um, a couple of moments of unbelievable power, and again, it's 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 very restrained from Jimmy McGovern, who's you know known for things like Cracker, to to do these scenes in this way. They're not they're not really delivered as these massive, hey, you should really feel strongly something now moments. You know, not emotional wallops. They're the payoff for all of this time that we spent with these people. I just thought it was beautiful. There's some really, really beautiful writing and acting um, in time. It's not perfect. Eh, a couple of contrivances. But actually, as an insight into the, the prison world, from what I understand, pretty, pretty spawn, pretty realistic. I loved time. 
And uh, I just, I loved Sean Bean's performance in time. At eight, At eight, I won't spend too long talking about it. Nomadland. It won all the awards last year. I think it won more awards, or Chloe Zhao for Nomadland certainly won more awards than anyone ever on the awards circuit has done. So, yeah, it's quite good. Um, I liked it a lot. I really liked it. I think it's, as, a, as an indie film, it's pretty much a modern masterpiece. But it's a very low-key film. Um, it's more low-key even than, than Into the Wild, which I think this is quite comparable to. Frances McDormand, again, brilliant. Uh, she's got her third Best Actor Oscar, <laughs> Best Actress Oscar. Brilliant. Good for her. Uh, deserved, 100%. David Strathern is in this as well. Anyone who listens to the Anthology for a certain number of years will know we love David Strathern over here. I think my favourite thing about Nomadland is that there is a scene involving, I'll just say, a cardboard box. Very simple scene. And uh, it broke my heart. It was really powerful. And that was when I knew Chloe Zhao had me. Because the, this very simple thing that happened with the cardboard box, I found myself very invested in. So, yeah, um, not for everyone, by any means, but Nomadland, pretty good. At, At seven. seven. Seven! The Green Knight, far and away the most beautiful looking film I saw in 2021. How this film was made for $15 million, I have no idea. Because genuinely, I think this film is more gorgeous than Dune. Precisely because it didn't have the resources of Dune. It also happens to be, for my money, the best cinematic version of any Arthurian tale, any Arthurian legend. It's oblique, uh, it's odd, definitely weird at times, a little too slow in the middle. It's a very slow and deliberate film overall, so you have to know that going in. But God, it earns it, man. It earns every last little bit of patience that you give it, because in the final 20 minutes of this film, I mean, first of all, the ending is uh, its just great. I didn't think it would end the way it ended, and I'm really glad that it did. Um, sometimes, you know, there's just a cut to black and you go, okay, good for you. That's how I felt at the end of Green Knight. But in the run-up to that, there's a montage sequence that, as I was watching it, I began to be convinced this might be one of the greatest things ever put on film. It's a phenomenal piece of visual, not just storytelling, but just visual beauty. And um, David Lowry, who's who's made some, it's some interesting films, for sure. I think this is definitely his best film so far and that montage shows such a mastery and command of all of the elements that go into making a film it's genuinely amazing i feel like i'm finishing all of these by saying i love that film but i did i love the green knight and i'm looking forward to seeing it again the number six the sexiest of all the numbers one night in miami which i, I really feel strongly it's probably why it's so high on this list possibly too high but the reason that i've put it so high is because i feel like it's really been overlooked or forgotten i thought this would be a big oscar contender uh, at the end of last year and i only saw it this year i think it was only released in this country this year a lot of places it was a 2020 release this is directed by regina king who i'm just convinced is a perfect artist she just everything she touches is gold right now and she's directing the story of sam cook muhammad ali jim brown and Malcolm X probably fictionally uh, spending an evening in a hotel room. But the performances, uh, especially of Ben, <laughs> not Ben Kingsley, dear, surely. Kingsley Ben Adir. Yeah, that's confusing. Kingsley Ben Adir as Malcolm X, and uh, my personal favourite, Leslie Odom Jr. as Sam Cooke, I think probably should have got the Oscar this year. So all four of the guys are great. Aldous Hodge plays Jim Brown, and uh, Eli Gorey plays. Cassius Clay, not Muhammad Ali. He's not Muhammad Ali yet. 
and it, oh, of course it's 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 four guys with very different viewpoints talking about what it's like to be black in America. But those two guys, especially Kingsley Benadir and uh, Leslie Odom Jr., just blew me away. Uh, mainly because it was a side of Malcolm X that was soft, you know, charming, happy even at times, which we don't see. We just see the angry, serious dude. And uh, yeah, Leslie Odom Jr. just completely disappeared into Sam Cooke. I, I'm not going to spoil the end of this film, but there's a performance aspect to the film, uh, which I thought was handled brilliantly. So yeah, One Night in Miami, uh, again, another film I think I'll, I will re-watch more than most people in the coming years. And I really, I want more people to see it because I, I feel like I'm a little bit crazy in thinking it's one of the best films I saw this year. Right, top five time. And there's really very little between these. So any one of these could be number one. Top five. And number five. five. Johnny Five is Alive. I'm struggling. Riders of Justice. The best Maz Mikkelsen film this year. And why this didn't get more press coverage, I don't really understand. Because it's quite a mainstream sort of action thriller. that just happens to have all of these indie movie stuff going on um it's there's a you know there's a philosophy and a spirituality to rise of justice at the same time as it being a revenge film about you know i mean it almost sounds like a jean-claude van damme film he was in the military someone got to his family he's going after them right and coming off the back of another round and you know the oscar glory that that had and it was very successful i don't know why there wasn't a bigger push for rise of justice because for me it's a more interesting film that's not a slight against another round at all I was shocked at how brilliant I thought Rides of Justice was. And it's one of those that just sort of seemed to satisfy so many different things. It's, it's funny, very, very well performed. Again, Maz Mikkelsen, probably one of the greatest leading actors working right now. But it really seemed to be about something as well. You know, it delivers on thrills, uh, animalistic revenge fantasy stuff, for sure. But this isn't Death Wish. It's bigger than that. I'm pretty sure you can get this in a variety of streaming places now. Um, and if you're not put off by subtitles, and honestly, grow up, you shouldn't be. Definitely check out Rides of Justice. So for me, it's one of the best films that I saw in 2021. Number four, I think everyone would agree, one of the best things that was put out this year. I'm saying it's a film, even though it's about eight hours long. The Beatles Get Back by Peter Jackson. Basically, barring one stylistic choice, which is to use unrelated footage over audio that they didn't have footage to cover, if that makes sense. Which for me started, it well, in the first chapter at least, started to look like a dubbed movie. That choice aside, one of the greatest films about making music ever made. And I feel really confident saying that. I've had conversations with so many people about this film. It really seems to have tapped into something for a lot of people. Whether it's lifelong Beatles fans who have had you know some of the uh, the myths dispelled by this uh, or people who were not particularly bothered by the beatles and were just fascinated at spending time with these very down to earth mega stars it's all of that and a whole lot more it's you know really really entertaining the kind of thing that we shouldn't really be able to see it's sort of just a miracle that it exists made by a fan and i i, I cast myself as in between i definitely grew up listening to the beatles and they're an important part of my musical education I don't listen to the Beatles every day and they're not like, you know, they're not my favourite band but also I'm not going to say oh yeah, the Beatles are well overrated no, they're not um, they're actually one of the most important musical acts that's ever existed and this this is the four of them at the end of their time together sort of reckoning with that before they know that it's it's the end of the Beatles although they, they kind of have those conversations as well, like, 
Do the Beatles need to be four people anymore? Could they be more? Could they be less? Do the Beatles even need to exist? What does it mean now that Brian Epstein's died? And all of this additional pressure that they pile on top of themselves by setting this arbitrary deadline to write from scratch, you know, 14 songs and record them, and then also record them live in front of an audience and all the forms. It's brilliant, anyway, it's brilliant. All four of them, I mean, come out of it looking very good, in my opinion. What really surprised me was how much respect I gained for Paul McCartney, who I've I've had very little interest in outside of him being a Beatle. Yeah, he's uh, he's a genius, man. He was anyway. It's it's gripping. I wish it was twenty hours long. I would watch. I could watch this all day long, and that's my only really regret about it is I watched it the first weekend it came out, and I can't carry on watching it. So I'm gonna have to watch it again. But if you get to the end of Get Back and you want more like that. I would refer you to my number 20 film, Summer of Soul. Okay, now top three, these are all number one, really. So I'm just going to talk about them, but just say it's a tie for number one. Three different genres. The Father, Anthony Hopkins, Olivia Coleman, Olivia Williams, Rufus Sewell, Mark Gatiss, Imogen Poots. All of these are phenomenal in this film. When Anthony Hopkins won the Oscar again this year for The Father, I thought, no, they're just giving it to him because he's old and it's their last chance. And then I saw The Father. And I thought, wow, no, that's really something. Um, and Anthony Hopkins is, is someone who's kind of said, you know, in more recent years, he doesn't find acting particularly hard. And I think some people, myself included, have interpreted that as maybe he doesn't really care that much anymore. And some of his projects that he's chosen to do would back that up. Now, if he can do something like The Father and say, oh, it wasn't that hard for me, you know, then he's truly one of the greatest actors who's ever lived because this film is phenomenal subjectively taking you inside what it would be like to have Alzheimer's or dementia anyway and the confusion and the anger and the fear and eventually uh, you know a bit like um, in Memento playing along like Sammy Jankis in Memento when you get that look when you recognize the look in someone's eyes that they know you and you have no idea who they are play along that's in here too so masterfully written and directed and edited uh, Olivia Coleman is another one of the people on my list of my favourite working actors, and she does it again with this one. Olivia Williams, I have to say, is right up there with her in this film. She's she gives a beautiful performance as well. But Anthony Hopkins, man, broke my heart. And that's the sort of the one caveat I would say about the father. It's it's a phenomenal piece of filmmaking in terms of the experience that it puts you through. But it's a very emotional experience. And the, the last sort of 20 minutes especially of this really, really upset me. I mean, I was in floods. And that's not hyperbole. I genuinely sat on my sofa for a while after this film had finished. Just trying to collect my thoughts. Because <clears throat> I'd been punched in the heart. So if you're not ready for that, if you're not in a place uh, to watch that, then don't watch The Father. But if, if you can brace yourself for that, think this is actually um i don't want to say an important film a, a significant film it's a very significant film um but it's one of those and I, the comparison i would make is a dancer in the dark the lars von trier bjork movie not okay bear with me on this comparison not in terms of content or even necessarily how much of a depressing <laughs> film it is but a film that i saw 20 years ago that i'd never rewatched because it's indelibly sort of burned into my brain 
And that's how I feel about the father is I don't know if I'll ever need to rewatch it. I hope I do because I think there's so many things in it that I admire that I'd like to revisit. But it was such a powerful and emotional experience, so brilliantly done and so sparingly done in terms of how it was written, how it was directed, that I may never need to see it again. It's probably a masterpiece. Other end of the spectrum, number two, two. although really number one, Palm Springs, which is my favourite comedy of 2021. I would say there have been a lot of films since Groundhog Day that have played with the time loop idea reliving the same day over and over again, all that kind of stuff. Some of them are good. Lots of them are good. I think Palm Springs is the best one since Groundhog Day. Certainly the funniest. On top of it being a very funny film with at least three very funny performers in Andy Samberg, Kristen Milioti, and J.K. Simmons. A great sci-fi film because it really takes that time loop concept right to the edges of what you can do with it. It tries to explore as much of that as possible. It's, It's clever. It's witty, it's it's cleverly made, you know, it's cleverly structured. And it wraps itself up in a way that is completely satisfying. There's a kind of a semi-post-credit scene or mid-credit scene that genuinely adds to, yep, great, that was uh, that was a loose end and you, you boxed it off, well done. Palm Springs is extremely rewatchable, one of the best things Andy Sandberg's ever done, and for my money, the best time loop movie since Groundhog Day. And number, and one, number one, perhaps arbitrarily number one, Sound of Metal. If Leslie Odom Jr. wasn't going to get the Oscar and Anthony Hopkins wasn't going to get the Oscar, Riz Ahmed was going to get the Oscar. He didn't, but that's fine. He will get one, I'm sure, at some point. His performance in this is unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. It's so good. And another film that sort of puts, tries to put you in the headspace of someone going through a life-changing experience um, and fighting against it. So similar to The Father in a way, but also to Mogul Mowgli. Uh, so he's a drummer who is rapidly going deaf and fighting against that because his whole life is about sound and the comprehension of sound and the use of sound. So it's going through that at the same time as going through how it's affecting his relationship, becoming a part of a new community, deaf community, and then also realizing that within that, there's kind of like deaf and proud, right? While he is saying, I don't want to be deaf, I want to survive, but I also want to thrive and I want to find a way to regain my hearing. And to a portion of the deaf community, that's not the done thing. It's you, You're deaf or you're not, right? I'm simplifying massively here. Just a, a very, very unflashily made, that's a horrible word, but unflashily made. It's not throwing barrels of style at you, necessarily. But it's also not trying to appropriate documentary, necessarily. I guess naturalistic. It feels naturalistic. At the same time, he's using these cinematic techniques, especially the use of sound, unsurprisingly to make you feel what Riz Ahmed's character is feeling. There's a scene between Riz Ahmed and Paul Racy, who is an actual uh, deaf actor in this film, who's also nominated for Oscar. Uh, Paul Racy gives a, another beautiful performance in this, complex and very heartfelt. And the scene between those two is one of the greatest things that I saw this year. There's also a scene between Riz Ahmed and Olivia Cook later on, Olivia Cook from Ready Player One. Yeah, very, very, very powerful. And that's my feeling about Sound of Metal is I didn't have any skin in this game, especially. And I thought this was a very, very powerful film without banging you over the head with feel something. It trusted its performers and material to get that emotional response from you. And it absolutely succeeded. Darius Marder, you are on the list of directors that I will be looking out for big time now because this film was probably my favorite film of 2021. (laughs) 
And there we are. We did it. Just to run down the top 20 there then. 20, Summer of Soul. 19, No Sudden Move. 18, The Power of the Dog. 17, The Night House. 16, Another Round. 15, Bo Burnham Inside. 14, Scenes from a Marriage. 13, Spider-Man No Way Home. 12, Mogul Mowgli. 11, The Last Jewel. Into the top 10 with June. 9, Time. 8, Nomadland. 7, The Green Knight. 6, One Night in Miami. And in the top 5, basically, all the best film of 2021 it's a tie for rides of justice the beatles get back the father palm springs and sound of metal that was my 2021 what was yours well if you really want to you could write to us at theanthology at gmail.com i'm going to be honest with you i'm pretty much shutting down on the socials personally so i don't check the anthology facebook page anymore and i don't think alex does either so you may be just shouting into the void if you contact us on there similarly with our twitter you can go on there if you want, but you're probably not going to find much. So I would say email us at theanithology at gmail.com. If you disagree with my take on The Matrix Resurrections or F9 The Fast Saga, or if you thought Shadow in the Cloud was a cinematic masterpiece that I've desperately misunderstood, you're probably a fucking idiot, but uh, feel free to email me. In terms of where the anthology and the Keanucopia goes next, probably not very far. I think there probably will be episodes that come out in 2022 that relate to Keanu and Tom Cruise, and probably not Arnold Schwarzenegger. Just as they have new films out, we're still waiting on Top Gun Maverick, for instance. I I don't know whether to go into my thoughts on The Matrix Resurrections, because it feels like I'll just be a grumpy old man shouting at a cloud. So I probably won't do an episode on that until such time as, you know, Alex gets in touch and says, I want to talk about The Matrix. He's just not going to be able to record for a little while. It's as simple as that. Whether that will change in the future, don't know. Uh, 2021's been a, a different year for all of us, and I think it's affected work life in a big way. Just talking about myself here, uh, but I know Alex's workload has also gone through the roof, uh, partially as a result of the pandemic. So um, it's just it's just not a priority for us at the moment. And we always said uh, if it ever becomes a chore or something that we're not looking forward to, it's time to stop. This is not me saying the anthology is over. I don't think it is, but in the short term, Alex and I do not have the time or the energy to put toward doing this on a weekly basis, which is what we've done when we've been doing it. So that's that, basically. However, there's going to be content here, so stay subscribed. There will be content in 2022. There's another year of film that I'm looking forward to, and I may well do an episode about what I'm looking forward to. Until then, if you're listening to this around New Year, I hope you're having a lovely time. Have a great 2022. Let's hope that 2022 is the year that we climb out of this pandemic to a reasonable degree. And all I would say is, you know, go ahead and do your own research. That's fine. But, you know, check your sources. Just get reliable sources. Okay? Okay. Until next, we meet over the airwaves or the emails. Look after each other. Be excellent to each other. And I guess that's it. Wrong! No sequel for you. (laughs) 